We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. To be true to ourselves, we must be true to others. I'm asking you to believe, not in my ability to bring about change, but in yours. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Blue Collar Convos. I'm Jordan Roan, and I'm so grateful to all of you for tuning in to the show today. And we've got a great one for you. On today's episode, we welcome Matt Adams, a central Pennsylvania native, someone who has for many years considered himself to be an independent in politics. And for this special Independence Day episode, I couldn't think of anyone better to bring on as a guest to discuss current events. There's plenty of them, and we delve into quite a few different topics. So I'm very thankful to have Matt Adams on the podcast today. You'll be hearing from him very shortly in our sit-down conversation. But first, I just wanted to extend my best wishes to all of those listening to this podcast in the United States, because... Right now, COVID-19 cases are not just continuing to exist, they're beginning to surge once again. And contrary to some unpopular belief out there right now, COVID is not over. I've been hearing people, even people in the media, saying, you know, we're living in this post-COVID society. That's simply incorrect. It's not factual, and it's dangerous to spread that kind of misinformation. COVID-19 is alive and well, and it does not discriminate against who it attacks. So there's a couple of different things that we can do as a society to rally around one another and to take on and take down this invisible enemy. And of course, the first thing is to wait out for a vaccine, which is not in our hands at this point in time. We can only hope to God that we have a vaccine sometime within the next year and do whatever we can to support the researchers and the scientists in in their battle to produce a vaccine. But what can we do outside of that? I'm not a scientist. Chances are you're probably not a scientist listening. Well, we can do very basic things that will help our community and stop community spread and keep all of us safe. Number one, believe science. It seems so elementary to believe science, to trust those in authority that are doing whatever they can to keep you safe. So when bars close down, it's not that they want to reignite prohibition it's that they want to limit the amount of people who are clustering together and spreading COVID-19 amongst one another because we are seeing in these states right now COVID-19 continuing to spread like wildfire why is that? because states have reopened and I understand we can't live in isolation forever but we also have to take precautions that are being recommended by those who know what they are doing, who know much more than you and I. 
we can wear a mask. Once again, something like a basic ask. It's not very hard. A piece of cloth over your face or a face shield covering your face. Our healthcare workers, our healthcare heroes, those on the front lines, working in grocery stores, those in sanitation work, garbage collector industry professionals, they have to wear a mask for hours and hours on end. Some have worn masks their entire careers. So for us, regular folks to be told, hey, you can save your neighbor by putting on this mask. Why is that so hard to comply with? Well, because people do not like to listen to authorities. You know the slogan, don't tread on me. You see the flags when you go through certain parts of, of the country, don't tread on me. Well, how about don't infect me? Let's start putting up flags that say that. Don't infect me. Our government is not conspiring to win an election in November. I've been hearing that quite frequently. That as soon as November 3rd is over, as soon as Joe Biden is elected president, COVID-19 is going to disappear. Just heard it the other day. That this is a political scam. Well, where do you think people got that idea from? Could it be that they listened to their president call it a hoax back in February? Could it be that they heard him say it's going to disappear just like that? And make no mistake, no one politician or legislator could have prevented this from the outset. But in times of crisis, people turn to their leaders to lead. And that's what Americans did. We turned to our president, like so many Americans have in the past during tragedies. And when we wanted to rally around the flag, our president let us all down. So next time someone tells you that this is all political, you can tell them that it is only political because when we needed a leader the most, we didn't have one. That's why this has turned political. Because we elect people into offices to represent all of us. And when that representation fails, when 120 plus thousand Americans are dead because of inept leadership, unlike any other country in the world, then yeah, you're damn right, it needs to get political. And we all need to be getting out. We can't knock on doors because of COVID, but we can pick up the phone. We can put up signs and register people to vote because it is a matter of life and death now. We lost way too many good people good Americans, some who were not even citizens who may have been living here, that were failed. And what can we do about it? Well, we can elect steady, sturdy, proven leadership 
this November. And I hope you'll join me in those efforts. So before we turn to our conversation with our special guest today, I just wanted to bring to light and amplify a story that was posted to the New York Times yesterday. And it has nothing to do with politics, but it does have a lot to do with the American dream, which I think we need to hear more about than ever before. And it really ties into the month of June, which we just exited, but a story on pride. Because Angela Madsen was a member of the LGBT community, and she was also a veteran. She served in the Marines, and while she was in the Marines, she was a member of a basketball team. And in 1981, she suffered a serious back injury. She fell to the ground and had her her back stepped on by a fellow teammate. And a dozen years later, when she was 33, she had surgery due to complications. And when she woke up, she was paralyzed from the waist down. And at that time, her partner cleaned out her bank account, left her on her own, and she then began living in the streets, paralyzed, sleeping in her wheelchair in front of Disneyland in California. Now, when she could have decided to wallow in despair and hopelessness, she took another path. She decided to start rowing, and she joined competitions. She won gold medals at World Rowing Championships, and she was even in the Paralympics. And then she decided, you know what? She can do more than that. So she rowed oceans. She conquered the Atlantic Ocean twice, the Indian Ocean. She circumnavigated Britain with rowers and with fellow teammates. But in 2013, she decided to do something historic. She decided to row the Pacific Ocean by herself from California all the way to Hawaii. But unfortunately, she was caught in a major storm and she had to be rescued. So she went back out and she did it again with a partner the next year. But all Ms. Madsen wanted to do was that journey alone. And this spring, she decided to set out and do so. Angela went leaving the Marina del Rey on April 24th in her 20-foot-long state-of-the-art fiberglass capsule called the Row of Life, decked out with an American flag, with a pride flag. This was a woman on a mission to do much more than what she personally wanted to do, but to be an example for the rest of the world, for those who may be utilizing wheelchairs for those who may be paralyzed for fellow Paralympians she planned to land on her row of life capsule in July at the Hawaii Yacht Club going the whole way from California to Hawaii now others have journeyed solo before but Ms. Madsen would have made major history in doing so she was setting out to be the first openly gay athlete and at 60 years old, to be the oldest woman ever to do so. Not to mention the first rower with paraplegia. So she was two months in and halfway to Hawaii when just recently she in the ocean discovered that there was an issue with her parachute anchor. 
that's something that when uh, in heavy seas you can deploy it and it will help stabilize uh, whatever you're on and her wife Deborah Madsen back in Long Beach, California was in constant contact with her and Angela was posting many pictures on her social media pages. She began growing a fan base who were following uh, the journey that she was on and Deborah had said, her wife had said that Angela knew that there was a cyclone coming but in order to fix the hardware to stabilize what, what she was on, the row of life, that would require her tethering herself to the boat and getting in the water to fix it herself. Now, Angela could have called for help. Angela could have waved the white flag because it's a cyclone. That's a dangerous situation. And to make it through would require her, as an individual utilizing a wheelchair, to get in the water to fix it on her own. And she set out to do this thing solo, and that's exactly what Angela did. On Saturday, June 20th, she posted on her Twitter page, Tomorrow is a swim day. It was time to get in the water. Angela was going to do this herself. And on Sunday, there were no messages from her. And her wife, Deborah, grew worried. Uh, she could tell from tracking data the boat was not being rowed. And at about 10.30 p.m., Angela texted uh, an individual named Soraya Simi, who was actually making a documentary about Angela's voyage. And at that time is when Deborah decided to make a phone call to the Coast Guard. And at 8 p.m., just last Monday, Angela was spotted by the Coast Guard, lifeless, tethered to her boat. Angela had died in that water, trying to fix her equipment to continue on that solo voyage. The Coast Guard had already diverted a German-flagged cargo ship to retrieve her body, and they did so successfully. Angela's body was recovered on Monday night, but the boat was not, and Deborah Madsen says that while no one may ever know what happened to Angela, she may have been caught in her tether, she may have developed hypothermia, or possibly had a heart attack or some other illness. They are still going to try to retrieve that boat because Angela was keeping a video diary and may have turned her cameras on when she entered the water. So we may finally know what exactly happened in Angela's final moments or any parting messages from her. That's a story that the world may know or may never know. And it may lie with Angela and the sea. But Angela's wife, Deborah, is arranging for her body to be transported to Hawaii for cremation and a burial at sea with full military honors. Her wife, Deborah, was quoted as saying, I want her to complete her journey. She will end up in Hawaii after all. Angela was 60 years old, a native of Ohio, a military veteran, an American hero for not just those with disabilities, not just for those in the LGBT community, not just those 
who like to row. Angela, Angela Madsen left this world on her own, in the sea, just where she wanted to be. So next time you're down and out, next time you're feeling tired, next time you think, do I really need to wear this mask? Do I really need to take that extra step, that grueling work in protecting my community? Think of Angela. Think of all the times that she could have used an excuse. And then remember that she didn't. We all have a part to play in keeping each other safe during this pandemic. Godspeed, Angela Madsen. Thank you for your service to our country. And now it's time to welcome our special guest. Matt Adams is a native of central Pennsylvania, deep in the heart of Trump country, a GOP stronghold. For most of his adult life, Matt has considered himself to be an independent voter before switching to the Democratic Party to vote for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 Democratic primary. I'll talk to Matt about that transition from independent to Democrat and much more. This is a Blue Collar Convo with Matt Adams. Matt, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thanks, Jordan. I'm glad to be here. So right now, Matt and I are sitting on the beautiful campus of Penn State Altoona right here in central Pennsylvania, Um, a place that we have a little bit of a history with, Matt. Uh, I've got, yeah, a little bit of history, uh, financial history, you know, all kinds. Yeah, yeah. So so Matt and I, uh, we've known each other for quite some time, and we'll get into that, but Matt and I also took a class together here when we were both in college, which was, it was not um, my, my proudest grade. Yeah. That was a statistics class. Do you remember that, Matt? I remember the three times I took the statistics <laughs> class. So at least one of those you were in it. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So. Yes. One of the times yeah. I was there, we sat next to each other and you know, I, I'm just fortunate that I, I did not have to take that more than once. I, I oh, yes, thank God were. every night <laughs> <laughs> that that professor uh, pushed me on through. Um, but we're not talking statistics today, folks, because that would bore everybody to death, and we wouldn't know what we're talking about anyways. Um, but nonetheless, Matt, I'm so thankful that you decided to uh, join us here on the podcast. Ooh, yeah, thank you. I'm glad you decided to have me on. Absolutely. And, you know, I was preparing for this interview um, not too long ago, and it coincidentally just so happened that my phone popped up with a notification. Oh, no. And it said, you have a new memory with Matt Adams. And oh, no. I was sitting there thinking, you know, wow, how ironic. What could this be? So I pulled it up and, well, Matt, I'll just, I'll show you the picture first and um, take it from there. Oh, good God. <laughs> Future business leaders of America. That's right. That's us, man. That's right. This, so, yeah. I, for all of you out there listening, I want to show you this picture, which is why I don't know if I'll ever do this again, but I have customized the cover art for this episode so you can go and take a look at this very moment and see what is Matt Adams and myself 
probably circa 2013. 2013, 2012, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe 2012. I don't even know. Oh, God. A but, thousand years ago. Yes. But yeah. that is a never-before-seen <laughs> photograph of us. Um, future business leaders of America, you mentioned it. You know, we... You know, we're going to take on the business world at one point. Uh, yeah, I kind of, we kind of, at least I kind of stumbled blindly into uh, <laughs> into that and ended up being like mm-hmm. in the top ten. We, we were like the yeah. top ten in the state for like something that we had no <laughs> idea what we were doing. And Absolutely, I was like up on a stage. We were like up on a stage with like people yeah. that were like very serious about oh, it. Oh yeah, and I'm up there all like disheveled with oh, like a gosh. suit jacket that I borrowed off of somebody that was. 25 sizes too big for me like the yeah. like the current business leaders of america are the yeah. ones who we were on stage yeah with. no the ones running the country are the people <laughs> that we 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 beat in that exactly thing, which is yeah. frightening such so, a yeah. yeah that says that says something for I sure don't know if that's what that says about us or them yeah or just where we're at so matt and i we traveled yeah. down to hershey pa and and um we had a it was supposed to be a trio and one of our partners actually dropped out at the last minute so we went to hershey by ourselves and uh we were marketing team, and um, maybe- yeah, it's, I don't know. I guess I had watched too much like Mad Men, and I thought advertising <laughs> was like a decent yeah. thing to get into at some point. You know, we did make you know top ten of the state. It's yeah. it's something that we can all cherish for the rest of our lives. Yeah. Cherish is a word. <laughs> <laughs> so so obviously, Matt and I go way back from very early schooling. You know, probably for the last dozen years, I'm sure we've known each other in some capacity. Mm. Um, and we've stayed in touch ever since. And, you know, Matty is actually the first sit-down guest interview here on the podcast. So, um, you know, history has made Matt. Congrats. That's great. Man. <laughs> okay. Setting the bar high. This is it. Exactly, exactly. So, so. at this point, um, you know, I've I've kind of given my introduction over the past couple episodes. But for all those who do not know who Matt Adam is, can you just tell us what do you do and just briefly your background? Sure. Uh, well, I currently am a, I kind of do social work. I work with, uh, with folks who are, uh, you know, either homeless or being evicted. And I work here in the county. Um, I'm doing that after a nine year stint making sandwiches at Sheets. So not a sponsor, not a sponsor. (laughs) No, they wouldn't sponsor me. They know better (laughs) than that. Um, yeah, so I've, I did that for, you know, just about all of my working life. And I also, at some point in there, spent a year living in Kentucky in an AmeriCorps mm-hmm. program, uh, which was also something I was woefully underqualified to do when I went uh, with no experience <laughs> and was asked to repair homes for, for uh, the poor folks of uh, McCreary County, Kentucky, mm-hmm. my home away from home. So, uh, yeah, so now I just kind of, I, I live and work in Altoona and, uh, you know, try and get involved when I can and where I can, and to that end, I, I, I guess I sort of have my, my fingers in a lot of different pies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the left of center yeah. uh, side of politics. Perfect. Well, you're a perfect guest because the description of this podcast starts out with left of center, so. Oh, well, there you <laughs> go. There it is. Yeah, I, I knew we had you on for a reason. Yeah. Uh, so, Matt, your, your upbringing, so going back to young Matt Adams, um, you know, when did you start to identify as you know, left of center, you know, as someone who would, you know, identify themselves as a, a more progressive kind of person? Um, how, how did that come to be? Uh, 
Well, it probably started in 2003 with the, <laughs> the Iraq invasion. Um, I don't know. It's, I guess I'd, I'd always been a liberal, kind of loosely defined. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad is a union plumber. My mom's mm-hmm. a, a county employee. So mm-hmm. uh, th- those kind of values were always kind of instilled in me. And I don't know, I just paid a lot of attention to the news at an age when that probably wasn't quite healthy for me to be doing just yet. <laughs> Um, I, I discovered John Stewart in the daily show at some point, And that guy was my hero for years and years. Mm. Um, and, uh, that, that's kind of how I, I got involved. I, when I got to college is when I started getting, uh, mm-hmm. more actually involved and less of a, a spectator. Um, and that's also when, when my, uh, ideas of politics and, and what society can be, uh, mm-hmm. started to shift a little bit more outside of you know the traditional John Stewart liberal <laughs> so that's when I started branching out a little more yeah so, so you you've grown up and and then you know you moved away for a brief stint but now you're back in what continues to remain a heavily conservative heavily republican dominated area mm-hmm. um so what made you kind of go against the status quo i mean somebody who obviously comes with, from the background of, you know, your, your, your parents, but, um, was it, did you feel pressure to conform to that majority opinion? Um, yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, even looking back, you know, even as, as near back as high school, I, I definitely held some views that were, you know, I can recognize now as like conservative political views that I might not have recognized that at the time, that that's Mm -hmm. what those were. They were just kind of values that uh, growing up here were kind of, you know, they seemed common sense. Um, and, you know, I've traveled a little bit. I've met a lot of different people and I've, I've encountered a lot of new ideas that uh, really kind of put that in perspective and mm-hmm. made me realize that, no, those aren't, that's not just like the way things are and that's not how everybody feels about this. Those are, uh, you know, things that, that, maybe come with growing up in uh what is generally considered a, mm-hmm. a conservative bastion of, of you know blair county yeah so. so you talked earlier about how you spent a year in kentucky correct yeah so you know so, sometimes people refer to central pennsylvania as and this is not the opinion of myself for Matt, but Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. So Philadelphia is that, and Pittsburgh with Kentucky. Exactly. In between them. Yeah. You got the red T. Yep. So, you know, with your spending your time in, in Kentucky, mm-hmm. how true is, is that statement? How true is Pennsylvania? Um, you know, we're at least in Altoona, we're certainly not Kentucky. Um, I, I think even recent history has kind of, shown that there's there's definitely a growth of something going on here mm-hmm. within the last couple of years we've had a uh, a gay pride parade mm-hmm. we've had uh black lives matter march mm-hmm. we've had uh you know i was at the first indivisible meeting after the 2016 election and you know the room we rented at the holidaysburg library wasn't big enough uh because we didn't expect there to be such a turnout mm-hmm. so uh and you know and you talk to folks who are like oh yeah i've you know I've been a liberal and I've been fighting for these things for decades. Yeah. Uh, and you know, folks like that are all over the place. So, well, you know, you can look at like our electoral seats and you can look at, 
you know, the decisions that get made by city council. And uh, it is very easy to kind of brush this area off as, as a, a lost cause or mm -hmm. it's like, well, just, you know, don't waste your time campaigning yeah. there. Um, I don't really think that's the case. I don't know if that was ever really the case that, you know, this area was a, a just doomed to the, the conservative slide. Mm -hmm. um, but it's certainly not the case now, yeah. I think, with, with the different conversations we're having here. Yeah, you know, I when I was out in 2018, you know, going door to door for the midterms, um, I can't tell you how many people I would walk up and, and speak to and their first react, you know, I would say, you know, I'm campaigning on behalf of, you know, certain Democratic candidates. And, mm -hmm. and it's a look of shock almost mm -hmm. like I thought I was the only one out here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you add all these people together, you know, suddenly you you do get a little bit of a oh yeah it's i mean it's something i i picked up in the the sanders campaign too in 2016 it's like if you go and you talk to people about the issues that they face in their mm -hmm. lives and uh you know the, the the sources of their problems um you can have really constructive conversations with them you yeah. can talk to people about healthcare. you can talk to people about uh you know workplace conditions um you can talk to people about racial inequality in the country mm -hmm. Uh, and it's really fascinating to have those those conversations with people um, when it's not just like, you know, Tucker Carlson spooning exactly, them. Yeah. Even in Kentucky, even in, in where I lived at in Kentucky, which was, uh, you know, for all of its history, you know, harshly conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, when you would talk to folks and you talk to them about, you know, the issues that were facing them, like the fact that they didn't own the land that they were living and working on, that it was pretty clear that, like, you know, a lot of folks there were dirt poor and there were a very uh, small group of people who were were profiting off of their labor. Um, you could have those conversations and it was surprising. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's certainly not not a lost cause. Um, you know, Elizabeth Catt writes a lot about uh, the South and Appalachia. Um, and, you know, she says, you know, Kentucky, West Virginia have racism problems because America has racism problems. Yeah. So even in those places, they're not necessarily doomed or they're not no. lost causes. I, I think it's uh, it's easy even for liberals uh, or folks like us to to look at those places and uh, blame them for, yeah. you know, what we have now. And it's like they're suffering, too. Yeah. Sometimes it's just about getting out and actually speaking to the person. I mean, yeah. in, in, in 2018, the... Um, you know the, the the party did a pretty good job in terms of getting out and about. I mean, we saw that in the results of the midterm elections when you know you had someone like Bob Casey and Tom Wolf who were up for re-election. I mean, their numbers were were huge. It was you know by all accounts a political landslide for both of them, and you don't get that unless you know you you don't get that just based off of Philly or Pittsburgh. It, it takes some of these more rural areas to do it in. And I think one gentleman who most people know is uh, John Fetterman, lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, who has already been out and saying, you know, the election this fall, 2020, which we'll talk more about later. Pennsylvania does not go blue unless the work in central Pennsylvania gets done by the party. Yeah. Um, Fetterman was here. Fetterman in, in 2016, yeah. I believe, when he was running for uh, for Senate. Yeah. I might have my years mixed up on that. But 
he he came here he came to penn state out that's right he talked to folks in the area because he you know he understands it's yeah you know pittsburgh and philadelphia for one aren't necessarily a given for Mm -hmm. for progressive ideas uh and for two you know you that can't be the end of your campaign Mm -hmm. you know you got to go to places like altoona you got to go to places like bedford you got to go to places like johnstown Mm -hmm. um and you know it's it's good to see folks who aren't afraid to do that yeah and you know john fetterman came i i I remember uh what you're talking about there when we were were both there to listen to john speak uh here at the campus of penn state altoona and well it was probably no more than 15 or 20 people who were even in the room Mm -hmm. that might be a little high but (laughs) Um, but look where he's at today, and I proudly uh, supported him and, and, and cast my vote for him when he was running for the um, not only for the U.S. Senate back in 2016, which he lost to Katie McGinty um, in the primary, but also when he was running for lieutenant governor. Um, I think a lot of folks in central PA, you know, when there's a huge slate of people, especially here when you hear you know names that you don't even recognize. Um, when you hear someone like John Fetterman, you know, oh, this guy, he, he will listen to my voice because he has already. He's already been here. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's important for all candidates. And I know it's tough now with you know the age of COVID. But um, if COVID wasn't happening, I would certainly expect, uh, you know, the Biden campaign, for instance, to, to be here on the ground in central PA. Mm-hmm. You know, back in 2016, we saw... Uh, we we saw Bill Clinton, the former president, at. Um, He's down in Holidaysburg. Or he was yes, he was at the Asme building, the building, right? building yeah. and it was very close to the election. Um, but I don't think, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe we saw Hillary Clinton here. No, I don't think um, she herself. Her personally, there, no. uh, we saw some surrogates for her, but um, yeah. you know, Joe Biden is a Scranton native, so um, it would have been certainly nice to see him here on the ground, but. I think uh, some virtual, virtual conferences yeah. will have to, to do, for now. Yeah, and I mean in the meantime, like we've got a lot of folks here, you know, in Altoona working on those uh, campaigns. I mm-hmm. mean, it's it doesn't it's not just them coming here. It's also you know the folks here who have been doing the, the yeah. legwork for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's like how long has Jillian Kratzer been working in Blair County? Um, Absolutely, knowing you know that in a lot of these campaigns and the numbers are kind of against her but yeah you know there's work to be done yeah you know if it, that's Julian Kratzer uh, chairwoman of the Blair County Democratic Committee um, who Matt just shouted out uh, tremendous work that she's been doing that's under incredible. such you know difficult circumstances mm-hmm. um, you know when the numbers aren't aren't with you it's it's easy to just sit back and you know Oh, let's just let's just keep getting ruled by Republicans yeah. and in the right. But you know, it takes a special kind of person to to tackle that head on. Oh yeah, it's, and um, you know, and it's I I don't know how these folks do it for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine O'Donovan, uh, I think she's originally from like the Portland area, but she was she was working for Planned Parenthood yeah. as a, a canvasser, and um, you know, she was working in Center County and rural areas. Um, I think she got she's working somewhere out east now maybe around Reading, i think but it's like mm-hmm. i don't know like i don't know how uh it, it really does take a special kind of person it does to, to do that kind of work and know what you're up against out here and, and still continue doing it without being bitter exactly and without uh 
and you know and still yeah. have the passion to do that yeah and one more shout out um a gentleman named frank rosenhoover from blair county who was the former uh chairman of the party um recently stepped down and retired for jillian to take over but you know frank being a lifelong democrat and uh party official on the state side too um he certainly deserves a lot of credit as uh as he is now in his retired life but um you know we can't forget his efforts as well which were were tremendous uh matt you talked a little bit about john stewart and some other influences i heard bernie a little bit any other any other figures maybe people people may not know of that um that influenced your political views um Joe Compton. <laughs> uh, yeah, Joe was, is a, a friend of mine. He's a longtime friend of mine. And um, he was the one who, I mean, that he's been a Marxist since, you know, I knew him as a child, basically. And um, he was the one who, who first kind of introduced me to those concepts and, you know, helped me make sense of some of them and helped me make sense of some of the things I was seeing. Um in 2016, especially when I, I started getting into the Sanders campaign and I started warming up to some more, more progressive ideas, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he was the first one, I think on, in Penn state Altoona before Bernie Sanders became like a household name. He yeah. was, he was the one that founded, you know, the progressive Democrats wow. in here so that, to try and get them elected. Um, and you know, he's up in Canada right now doing work with, uh, food, not bombs, so he's out like distributing food and huh. fixing up houses and stuff. It's it's really incredible. Um, so I, I, I think in terms of like singular influences on my politics and in the way I see the world, I think uh, Joe Compton is definitely definitely up there. Um, you know, and he's also the one that introduced me to like Murray Bookchin. <laughs> uh, it was kind of through him that I, I started getting into uh, Murray, who was like, a writer and he wrote. Uh, you know, he's an anarchist writer, and, and he wrote about, like, municipalism and different ways that we can kind of organize ourselves, ways that, you know, just to me were totally mind-blowing, were totally outside of anything I had ever mm-hmm. thought of or encountered before. And uh, that was another big step as uh, kind of understanding that, you know, this isn't the only way uh, we have to do things. There are other ways. There are other ways that work, that can be done. And... Um, I mean, that's been, you know, unspeakably important, those kind of realizations. So. All right, switching gears now, Matt. Uh, the last time that I really had a chance to sit down and, and talk with you was pre-COVID-19. Uh, yeah. Seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah, a thousand years ago. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so how are you coping with COVID-19? How have things been going for you and your family in terms of know health and just <sighs> sanity oh man uh, i haven't baked any bread yet <laughs> i know that's been the thing to do i've been resisting it but i think i'm pretty close to that point um it's been it's been halfway decent uh i was definitely a little more panicky uh mm-hmm. towards the beginning and now yeah. you know that's morphed into more of just a generalized anxiety about the uh yeah the, the end state we're in right <laughs> now but uh yeah when i was you know working at sheets uh, we stayed open and we stayed kind of interacting with the public, um, which, which, you know, we found strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand we're an essential business. We, you know, we sold gas and everything, but, yeah. uh, you know, one, one did wonder, uh, 
while you're deep frying cheesy bacon bombs at six thirty <laughs> in the morning, exactly what life sustaining purpose you're it, serving question in, in society. But, you know, she, they, we were worried about it, and we were, it was kind of the joke amongst ourselves that we were, we were the, the guinea pigs yeah. of uh, Altoona, because if, if anyone was going to get sick immediately, it was going to be, uh, you know, hospital workers, service mm-hmm. workers, the, the laundry list of Absolutely. essential workers that are, are kind of hand-to-hand with the public um, every day. Uh, and so there's definitely some, some nervousness about that. Mm-hmm. Um, which has subsided a little bit now, uh, but I'm doing well, you know, I'm trying to be more aware of, of my community and the things that we need. Um, realizing how ignorant I was of those things pre COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, You know, I had no idea how many people, uh, in this city depended on the boxed school lunches that are handed Mm -hmm. out, uh, until, you know, that wasn't available anymore because it was shut down by COVID. And suddenly you had, you know, countless families in the city and in, in the county who, you know, had been depending on this food that they weren't getting anymore. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until until that the crisis really took hold that I, I really started to understand some of the, the inequities we have mm-hmm. here. So. Yeah, so just so everyone's aware, uh, Matt and I are social distancing oh yeah during this conversation and um we both brought our masks as that is now uh mandated Mm. i believe mandated by pennsylvania's governor yes when leaving the house so we are complying um but nonetheless you you talked about uh frontline workers service workers obviously we know just how um how valuable the healthcare workers have always been out there saving lives um but isn't it funny, Matt, how suddenly, you know, the term, you know, frontline workers has expanded to so many people who have always been mm-hmm. overlooked and disrespected mm-hmm. for so long. You know, oh, yeah. you working there um, at Sheets, you know, I still work, you know, at a grocery store, you know, amidst all of all of this. And, um, you know, the, the CEOs and the corporation, uh, the the C level corporation folks, they're they're resuming, they're at home, right? So, can you just talk a little bit about you know that transition, you know, to, to suddenly being you know one of the most valuable assets in the country? Oh man, uh, well, I mean, I think for a lot of folks, like it was it was a, a weird moment too because you know I, I, a lot of the people I worked with and a lot of my friends and and you know these different jobs never had any conception that like their job was somehow sustaining, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the functioning of society. Um, you know, I, they certainly would have, wouldn't have considered themselves. I wouldn't have considered myself and I still really don't, yeah. um, in the same, uh, category as like nurses or garbage yes. work, garbage, uh, garbage people, yes. sanitation workers. Um, but I think for a lot of folks it really did lay bare exactly, you know, the kind of, work that does keep things going and the kind of work that is important and uh not only the kind of work that's important but who in that chain of command is not very vital exactly exactly so (laughs) you know uh grocery store workers suddenly became the heroes yeah um and you know hopefully those conversations they started having those conversations among themselves i know a lot of them did 
where it's like, wow, if we're so vital, maybe we can start demanding more things from our yeah. from our bosses or from the people that own this company who clearly aren't as vital to the functioning of, yeah. of this enterprise. Um, and I think a lot of those conversations did happen. And yeah. yeah, I mean, if I'm optimistic about anything going forward, it's that, you know, maybe there's a little more awareness in the workplace of the role that we play and of the, the roles that, you know, other people in, in those enterprises play. And maybe a little more solidarity mm-hmm. too. Uh, I should hope so, anyway. And, yeah. and the the conversations I've had with you know my coworkers and with with other folks and these kind of who are still working uh, through the initial stages of the pandemic, um, it seems like those conversations did happen. And and again, I'm you know maybe that is the most optimistic thing going forward. Oh yeah, is that there has been an awareness of these things. And I'm sure you know there's a ton of um, CEOs out there right now that are so nervous of hearing the U word, which is unionize uh, for years. Um, you know, I've heard many stories, you know, once a year going up and, um, you know, this has actually happened to me, you know, go up and watch, you know, anti-union videos and uh, you know, tell you just how horrible they are, but and how great you actually are treated, <laughs> even, uh, even though you might not feel like it all the time. Um, but, you know, you talked about solidarity, and, and I think you're completely right on that. Um, and I'm sh- all of our listeners, I'm, I just guarantee, treat those frontline workers with the dignity and respect they deserve. But um, Usher's hurt. Certainly hope so. Oh, yes. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, I see firsthand many who don't. And, you know, where, where I'm working, you know, we have you know, people in their 60s and 70s. I mean, high-risk, vulnerable individuals who, you know, it would have been extremely easy to stop working um but then again they need a paycheck right Mm. and um when someone is struggling like that amidst the global pandemic it it does just break your heart that um they either have to choose to you know go and and fight this invisible enemy or go home and fight poverty well yeah i mean even even before the the pandemic uh you know one of my coworkers at the store was you know she was she was an older woman she's probably well past retirement age um and like she was going blind mm. and it was like you know we you know we talked to her we're like you know why you know you're having trouble have you thought about retirement have you thought about this have you thought about that and I mean, she was basically like, I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. She's like, I can either retire now and like not pay, be able to pay for like my medications yeah. in the house that I live in, or I can, you know, keep working through this. And she kept working through it. And, you know, that was even before the pandemic and the, the, the pandemic put in really striking relief, those kind of, of everyday cruelties that are performed upon working people. Yeah. And, you know, we see with COVID the racial disparities um, the CDC came out and, and said, you know, the, the current data suggested just a disproportionate burden of illness and death among racial and ethnic minority groups. So is this because of underlying health conditions and lower access to care? Or, or is it part of a much bigger picture when it comes to, you know, health care equity across the board? Uh, is this just a, a moment in time where suddenly, uh-oh, um, the system's been exposed? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think it, it, it fits into, the, you know, much larger problems, obviously. Um, you know, how long have, have 
we've been hearing from from black communities about uh, how they're you know in describing their symptoms how doctors don't listen to them mm -hmm. or how you know uh, black folks don't get like a lot of the medications or some of the painkillers they need uh, from doctors because of these yeah. weird ideas that you know they doctors have about who they're giving painkillers to mm -hmm. uh, you know whether they you know whether that's obvious to them or not um, I mean it, it 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 follows of course that in in the event of you know a, a massive public health crisis that there are folks who aren't getting the treatment they need and aren't getting the attention that they need mm -hmm. um, and I think that's you know I think that's that's across the board for everybody yeah that, that we don't have the kind of infrastructure in this country to respond to these kinds of, of public health crises um, and I think we all suffer for that but you know we don't all suffer equally from that yeah and it's it's another one of those things that it's like uh, you know, th this is the big story that, like, you know, black folks are, are getting left behind in the healthcare system, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of them are just like, well, no shit, you know, yeah. we've always known that. Um, and, you know, hopefully more people are aware of that now going forward. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, you try to be optimistic about that, that, that when, you know, COVID has, has brought some of these, these problems more into the national discussion, mm -hmm whether that necessarily means anything's going to be done about it or, yeah. or people are going to organize uh, around it, you know, remains to be seen. Yeah, c Compared to whites, Hispanics are almost three times as likely to be uninsured. African-Americans are almost twice as likely to be uninsured. In, in all age groups, blacks were more likely than whites to report not being able to see a doctor in the past year because of cost so you know some on the right say you know you just can't prepare for something like this right nothing could have been done ahead of time you know but then on the left folks are saying you know th this reignites the desperate need for universal health care uh is that something that you agree with oh absolutely yeah i mean it's i don't you don't have a functioning society if you don't have a, mm -hmm. a society with you know uh equal rights to health care and we certainly don't have that. Um, I don't know. I mean, the idea that, like, you can never be prepared for this. And it's like, sure, like, maybe we didn't know specifically what was coming or we didn't know X, Y, Z. But it's like, you know, we other countries have dealt with this better. And it's because they have a better healthcare infrastructure. It's yeah. because, you know, it's not necessarily because they were sitting around waiting for the big one to come, waiting for the, the, the pandemic. It's because, you know, public health is is a priority. It's something that they, they invest in. It's something that they maintain. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that clearly works yeah. by every metric. Uh, and it's, it's something that it's no accident that we don't have that here. It's a specific choice that, you know, the people that run the country have made. Yeah, I think it's something like 5% of the total population uh, the U.S. has, but like a quarter of total covid cases mm -hmm. and at what point do we stop and say wait a minute you know number one failed leadership mm -hmm. number two a failed nation mm -hmm. yeah no it's i mean it's a it's a it's a it's a not a functioning society i mean it's mm -hmm. simple as that so, so where matt you know when and, and and god willing we get a vaccine mm -hmm. to put this to rest whether or not you know, some people on the right are now saying they're not going to take a vaccine. That's another story. But, Matt, should a vaccine be free to all Americans? Yes. 
absolutely um i mean no question i mean what is what is the argument against that mm -hmm. that I mean, I know what the argument against that is, yeah. but like what person with a soul in their body will, will sit there and, and uh, defend that? Um, no, I mean, it's, I, I think any vaccine that would be developed, you know, is, is building on the shoulders of years of, you know, publicly funded research and universities and, and yeah, you know, for someone to turn around and privatize that for profits would be disgusting and unthinkable oh absolutely but i shouldn't say it's unthinkable because i could oh many are thinking right i as could we see speak. it happening <laughs> for sure one um, one two, 1.2 billion dollars was granted to astrazeneca for trials and, and you know even the the thought the notion that they could turn around and then be able to profiteer billions more from the consumers who have no choice but to save their lives by getting a vaccine that is grotesque and every sense of the word yeah uh in 1923 the original patent for insulin sold for only a dollar in 1955 jonas salk developed the polio vaccine gave it away for free but big pharma wants the profit off of covid what can we do about it well i mean i think i think it's clear just by those examples that like yeah we got to do something about it um you know Polio doesn't exist anymore in any real form, and diabetics are, you know, trying to start Kickstarter campaigns to get their insulin. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's the difference between, a, you know, public health and, and privatized mm -hmm. health. Um, what to do about it? I don't know, man. That's the question. Put People First is, a, is an organization that, that does a lot of work around healthcare in Pennsylvania. It's led by uh, Nijmi uh, Jenko and uh, I don't know they've one of their their uh, demands when when COVID crisis started was that the the state uh, kind of repossess and reopen closed hospitals across mm -hmm. the Commonwealth mm -hmm. um, you know I don't think it's and this is me talking I don't think it's outlandish to uh, should a, a vaccine be developed and privatized mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, repossess that through the state and make it a public good and make it something that's available to everyone. And I'm totally aware that, like, there's some libertarian right now cringing sitting there <laughs> talking about it. And it's like, at a certain point, you know, you're, you're working towards a political project. And the state seizing a pharmace uh, pharmaceutical company in order to make something one of their products a public good is not an ideal solution in the long run but it's like if you're facing down the barrel of a public health crisis like that's the kind of action that needs to be taken if you're mm -hmm. talking about saving lives if you want to you know sit around and uh you know feel good about yourself because you've you've done your due diligence in honoring mm -hmm. the constitution or, or whatever fetish you you adhere to <laughs> uh you know good for you but you can do that while people are dying and it's like, you know, real action needs to be taken at a certain point. Yeah, th that libertarian probably has already turned this off a couple yeah, minutes no, ago. Yeah, they're done. <laughs> they're out of here. Uh, I probably know them. So. <laughs> Thanks for the shout-out to put people first because, you know, the work they're doing is, is really making a difference. Yeah, I, I really do encourage 
folks to look into like the list of demands that they've drawn up because I know mm -hmm. I'm not doing it justice by just kind of casually mentioning yeah. them. The kind of work they do is is uh, it has it has deep roots and they're you know established all across the states and there's a real uh, a real movement and a real uh, philosophy there that I, I I think definitely needs folks need yeah. to look into a little more. And I'll tell you what we we can do is throw a link in this episode's description leading you to uh, a page with more information on put people first in ways that you can help so thanks for that matt yeah of course so at this point i want to play you a sound bite uh no context i'm just gonna play it and we'll hear your thoughts how's that sound uh, i'm sure i'm gonna love it absolutely why is this happening today and i'll tell you why all of this has been promulgated by the Democrats to undo all the good that President Trump has done for our country, and they are worried. So take off your mask, exercise your constitutional rights, stand up, speak up, and vote Republican. My name is Cynthia Brim, and I'm the chairman for the Republican Party of Bear County. Thank you. Matt, your thoughts? Jesus Christ. Um, I don't know. Like... What do you say? Like, how do you respond? Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, cons conspiracies in American politics are nothing new. Mm -hmm. I, I don't necessarily buy into this idea that we're, you know, since 2016 somehow living in like a post-truth era. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the chairperson of like a local Republican committee going out and saying some, you know, just clearly conspiratorial uh, nonsense you know, we, we can all look at that and, and point out pretty clearly that, like, yeah, there's something wrong here. Um, yeah. But, you know, like, I don't think that's anything new. I don't think that's, you know, how is that different from Iraq, from, you know, those weapons of mass destruction got to be somewhere. Mm -hmm. How is that different from, from Gulf of Tonkin? You know, when was the truth era that, that we supposedly missed? I don't know if it existed. So while that is... Uh, you know, patently absurd, uh, I would think to, to most folks, hopefully, but yeah. I don't know, maybe that's not true. You know. um, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think it's anything new, uh, and so I don't despair about that as, like, some newfound, uh, you know, political idea that we need to, like, yeah. rally against. I, I think it's, it's continuing a long tradition of uh, absurd... American politics. You know, people, they're not wearing masks. Yeah. They say they're not getting vaccinated. I literally just heard today someone say that, well, you know, this whole COVID thing is soon. Just you wait. November 3rd, if Joe Biden wins this election, the coronavirus is going to disappear overnight. November 4th, America will wake up and COVID 19 will be eradicated. But if Donald Trump wins re-election, mm -hmm. this thing will stay until 2024. Mm -hmm. And, Matt, do you find yourself en engaging with these people? Are you debating with them, or are you are you just staying reserved? Is it a lost cause? I mean, it depends. Like, I don't think it's, it's realistic or feasible or useful to, you know, mm -hmm. strike up an argument with, with every single one of your coworkers or mm -hmm. every single person... Uh, you know, you, you run into in the streets. I don't think it's especially useful to, like, start an argument at every single, uh, you know, Thanksgiving. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, maybe that's, maybe I'm not radical enough, but I don't see that you're not changing any kind of structure by doing that. Yeah. If, uh, you know, if your local elected official is going out spewing some nonsense about, you know, conspiracies with coronavirus, it's like you can sit there and, and debate him with, you know, you can hit him with the facts or whatever <laughs> you, you think are the facts. Facts? What are facts? Yeah, right. And um, it's like at, at the end of the day, you know, that's that's not necessarily useful. I think what, what the useful thing in that situation is, is, is to start organizing around that and building mm-hmm. movements and then like... If it's that your elected official is a, a lunatic and you need to get him out of there, it's like get someone running for office. If yeah. it's that your your supervisor at work or your boss is, uh, you know, spouting some crap, it's like well, you're not going to get very far arguing with them. Organize your coworkers. Start a union. Don't start a union. Just organize. You know. Um, and I, I think those are the solutions. And I think that's that's the more effective way to engage with that kind of thing rather than uh you know sitting down and and getting in the the debate with the person i don't find debate to be especially useful i think it's just Mm -hmm. sports for nerds you know (laughs) this isn't the coliseum this isn't the place for it um you know movements in organization are what get things done i don't i don't think uh having the the war of words uh, at your student union is necessarily the way to do it uh in my experience well said. You know, I find it so interesting, those predominantly on the right um, in recent uh, weeks, and this is kind of venturing off topic, but we'll try to keep it back here to COVID. Uh, they're saying, you know, we need to preserve history. We need to keep statues alive. We need to be able to continue waving our Confederate flags. Don't tread on me. Um, you know, if you don't remember your history, you know, you're doomed to repeat it, but, you know, today, and I've done it myself, you can walk through local cemeteries, and you can, you can read so many 1918 to 1920 deaths right here in central PA, certainly if you venture more towards the east, you're going to see the same, as a result of the 1918 Spanish flu, where people could not have cared less and most people know the story by now they've heard it in the media about how philadelphia uh their city went out and they had the liberty bond parade with over two hundred thousand people in attendance while the flu was making its way from person to person st louis meanwhile they closed schools immediately they limited gatherings to 20 people they enjoyed great success the charts are astonishing to look at in terms of the death of individuals in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania um, versus those in St. Louis. Um, why do you? Why, when we look at that, first off, you see the hypocrisy there between those yes. two events. Yeah. Why are we not being more forceful in enforcing, you know, the wearing of masks? Why is is it? Are we afraid of? people saying that their individual liberties are being restrained to try and subdue a global pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're, you know, that's the argument, right? Um, you know, in some, in, of course, that the enforcement of those kind of things varies. Uh, I, I think it's pretty clear now, you know, we're, we're far enough into this that we can, we can start taking a look at the way that different states and different uh, local governments have responded to mm-hmm. this. And, you know, start drawing correlations between that and, uh, 
you know, the ways in which the pandemic has affected that area. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that places that were more aggressive in, uh, in enforcing, um, you know, social distancing, wearing masks, et cetera, uh, you know, had a little more success in fighting the pandemic. Yeah. You know, obviously, I don't think that's, that's the, the surefire way to, like, stop the disease. I, I don't think, uh, you know, I think we're just putting a Band-Aid on it until we have an actual public health system. But working with what we have right now, yeah, you know, the masks seem to work. Um, and I, I think, you know, the, the, the hesitation to it has been weird, but, like, the justification for those hesitations has, been, has also been very weird. Oh, my gosh. I think a lot of folks were... You know, everyone likes to see themselves as the hero of, of mm. the apocalypse um, mm -hmm. when it's in some like masculine role. But when it's it's in the only thing that's required of you is is a little bit of dis discomfort yeah. in service of empathy and, you know, taking care of your community. We have a harder time getting folks to, to you know, go with that. And I think it's very telling how, you know, a lot of people like to claim they are the most patriotic person uh, God ever created, but when it comes to wearing a mask to protect your fellow human beings, well, then suddenly, uh, you know, it, everything's off. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the what what you're devoted to is is pretty clear then at that point. Because if you don't want to wear your mask because mm -hmm. uh, you know it violates some right that you think you have. Uh, you know, you're more devoted to these these religious ideas of what you're entitled to uh, from the Constitution or from, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you're drawing that from. You're more devoted to, the, to that than you are to the actual physical uh, health and safety and well-being of your community, which is telling about the, the kind of political project you want to build and the kind of society you want to live in. Mm -hmm. It's not the one I want to live in. Mm -mm. And, you know, if they had their way, it's not a society that would exist because we'd all be dead from the the plague at this point exactly so. matt you've been working with some mutual aid groups locally in your community can you talk briefly about that and how that came to be and um and how rewarding is that for you yeah yeah the the blair county mutual aid um i mean this, this was i'm shouting out jillian kratzer again because this was her her project from day one mm -hmm. um was this really cool thing that popped up where uh it was clear that, that when things were shutting down and people were, were hurting that um, the local bodies we have here weren't sufficient uh, for, you know, meeting the kind of needs that folks in the community had. So within, you know, a couple weeks, uh, a couple different pantries sprung up on people's front porches. Uh, you know, these were organized, but there was no, like, clear hierarchy to this kind of thing. There was no formal organizational structure. Uh, it was just people in communication talking about uh, how they could help, what they had to give, whether that be, you know, they had some extra money to go grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. They had time to go deliver groceries to folks in their homes who couldn't get out. Mm -hmm. They had, uh, you know, a car where they could load up like a space heater to take to some guy who got his heat shut off. Um, and, you know, that, that still exists a little bit, mm -hmm. I, I think, as, you know, it's becoming clear that the, the pandemic you know, has never really gone away, but it's, yeah. it certainly seems to be creeping back into into the national attention. Uh, I think we're going to see some more activity out of those mutual aid networks the, that we've set up here. Mm -hmm. uh, I know in Center County, they, they've they set up a, it, it's called 4CR, it's the Center County COVID 
community uh, relief. And it's, yeah, right. And uh, it's, uh, that's a little more formalized structure. They have uh, like a bank account where like if people were, were short on money for like their, their rent or for their utilities or whatever, yeah. they were helping make payments to people. Wow. Uh, they had uh, fundraisers where there was like a tamale fundraiser where they, they raised like thousands and thousands of dollars selling tamales to people <laughs> um, that they could then redistribute to the community yeah. for folks who needed it. Um, you know, that, that to say that, you know, Altoona Blair County was not alone in that those kinds of efforts, those kinds of things sprung up everywhere. And it was another opportunity where, uh, you know, folks were networking and folks were meeting each mm-hmm. other and, and really understanding uh, the needs of the community, myself realizing yeah. where, you know, the, the kinds of things that folks here depend on that suddenly weren't there, like the boxed school lunches that the, the local school district was providing to students. Mm-hmm. Um, realizing that you know the food banks and things that we have here who worked very diligently and and are incredible resources uh are overwhelmed um and it was a a a moment to start thinking too about you know what we want this city to look like and you know the the kind of future we want to build and it's it's one where you know if someone doesn't have food in the fridge there's places they can go it's one where if Uh, someone's having trouble with their landlord, they have somebody they can call. Yeah, you know, I always love the quote from the late, great Mr. Fred Rogers, which was, you know, look for the helpers. You'll always find people who are helping. And in this case, you and so many others in the community and communities across the country, uh, maybe you listening right now have stepped up and done your part uh, for the most vulnerable among us. And um, Matt, to you and to all those listening, kudos and, and thanks for all that you've done oh, well thank you I know um, I, I'm trying to I, there's a long list of people who had the porch pantries going on and I can't think of all of them off mm-hmm. the top of my head I know Jillian had one on her front porch uh, Marina Moses was running one Bridget Jackson um, you know just really incredible people in our community mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm glad we have here and I'm glad you know when uh, when it comes around again which it inevitably will mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm confident that, that we'll have folks uh, willing to you know help out matt we've also faced some trying times as a country recently um which has brought the black lives matter movement back to the forefront uh, cause that you know, both of us support obviously uh, what are your thoughts on how america has changed since the death of george floyd there's been a lot that has happened mm-hmm. uh well again i mean it, it's one of those issues that it's you know, police brutality is not by any stretch a new issue, uh, and it's not at all an issue that hasn't been in the, the public consciousness before. Um, I think more and more it's it's coming into people's homes. Uh, you know, we've had, not only have we had a, a Black Lives Matter march here, uh, which by itself was incredible, we've had, you know, another group, um, Progress for People of Color, mm-hmm. Progress for People of Color, uh, who have also come about and, and kind of done their own uh, interpretation on, on the civil rights moment right now. Uh, so the fact that uh, we have, you know, multiple kind of arms of this happening uh, in our community, in a dialogue, in a discussion, at, at some points even, uh, you know, opposed to each other, um, is something that I didn't think we'd see here in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a discussion that people are having 
it's a, it's a discussion that people are having with their local leaders, with their police force, um, thinking about the future of what the police forces might look like. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, people over the years talk about police brutality and how we need training and how we need, uh, you know, XYZ, body cams, what have you. Um, but, you know, I've never heard in my own dining room before a conversation about, uh, you know, what a world with, with, without police might look like. And that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I, I tend to believe that the places those conversations are happening, uh, there's a greater amount of them. And, you know. So, Matt, in the death of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, as most people know, Rayshard was sleeping in his car in a Wendy's parking lot yeah. when the cashier called the police for suspicious activity. Moments later, Rayshard was laying in his own blood. My question that I've been asking is, why are, why are police being called to that situation in the first place? You know, this is not a man who... You know, by any indication, was was armed, dangerous, putting others at, at at risk. You know, if there's a medical concern for Rayshard there, oh, a man, maybe he, maybe he's passed out. Maybe there's a medical emergency. Well, we have EMS for that, right? Mm -hmm. So, I guess the question I'm asking is, where do you stand on defunding the police, abolishing the police, is reallocating? the police budget, there's so many things that are flying out there right now. Uh, is there is there one that you particularly side with more? I don't know if there's any that I particularly side with. I, I definitely am, am more sympathetic to calls for defunding the police and abolishing the police. Uh, the problem I have with those kinds of uh, campaigns is that that doesn't mean that, that policing, the act of policing goes away. It means mm -hmm. we have privatized policing. Mm -hmm. It means that rather than the city of Altoona having a police force, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Sheets will have a police force. Uh, you know, i will have a police force. Walmart will have a police force. Uh, and some of these places already do. I mean, Penn State has a police force. Yeah. Uh, Norfolk Southern, the railroad here, has police. Hospital. The hospital has police. Uh, and I, I think by... by taking policing out of the public uh you know the public sphere we're not necessarily getting rid of police mm -hmm. we are just kind of shuffling them and there's an argument to be made that you know a, a more privatized police has even less accountability mm -hmm. uh, to the people um that doesn't mean i think what we have now is working it's clearly yeah. not yeah uh you know I, I don't know enough about it i don't know what the solution to that is uh obviously i don't think you know police are police are a vital part of capitalism uh whether those be police you know working for logan township or police working for mcdonald's mm -hmm. uh, and i don't think we're going to solve that problem in in the economic system we have now uh, i don't think it's possible and so you know, any ideas I have about what the police might look like in the future are more tied into what I think our economic system might look like in the future. Matt, why do you think it's so hard for um, churches, local dioceses, both nearby and far away, um, congressmen and women, particularly Republican congressmen and women, to come out and say three simple words, Black Lives Matter? You don't see it anywhere from those groups it, it, I'm sure 
it has happened, a very rare occurrence. What does that say about, you know, the the person? Well, I mean, it's, you know, All Lives Matter is, is it's a cultural marker. It's a way of saying, I'm different from these people. Um, you know, whether that, you know, signifies any actual political project, you know, varies from person to person. Um, and I, th- I, I mean, I don't know. I don't think it's much more complicated than that. I think it's, it's a simple uh, way of differentiating yourself from, from folks who are out on the streets. It's a slogan. It's a simple way to say, mm-hmm. you know, I support the police. I support the world that you, you being, you know, white folks live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can depend on me to, to continue your, your status in society and in your place in the poll. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's just a convenient, it's a convenient marker for, for, you know, whether they be business people or mm-hmm. congresspersons or whomever they might be. You know, no quote-unquote pro-lifers um, spoke out when the kids were locked in cages. No pro-lifers uh, spoke out, speak out, I should say, when black people are executed on the streets mm-hmm. by police. I like to say, you know, pro-birth does not equal pro-life. You know, these groups that I mentioned earlier, you know, churches and and you know, GOP politicians, you know, they head down, they march for the unborn. They say it's the March for Life. They march for the unborn in Washington, D.C., but they cannot acknowledge systemic racism and and things that are plaguing and killing those who are living today. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, obviously, I don't think the people who say they're pro-life are actually doing it because they're in favor of you know, the unborn children, Mm -hmm. because, you know, obviously a lot of these other policies are are geared towards uh, taking away life or reducing people's quality of life. I think, you know, this isn't necessarily an issue that I I feel like I have a lot of uh, knowledge of or a lot of uh, familiarity with as as a, you know, a white dude. Mm -hmm. Um, I would suggest... I think the origins of the pro-life movements are, are a little more deep-seated than, you know, it, it would appear on the surface. I think, you know, the the privatization of women's bodies as a reproduction of capital is a really big topic. It's something that, you know, you could occupy an entire career researching. Uh, Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch is the best resource to to start thinking about this from a more marxist perspective Mm -hmm. um and honestly to be totally honest i recommend that book to anybody uh who's just interested in marxism in general as an introduction uh, you know even over you know the more the more quote-unquote foundational texts uh caliban and the witch by sylvia federici is is foundational we could start a a series of yeah. Matt's recommendations. Oh, it's a book club. Uh, <laughs> a book re- yeah, a book club. I'd be down. <laughs> so, Matt, I talked a little bit earlier in your introduction about how you uh, originally were registered as an independent. Then you made the jump over and became a Democrat right around the time when Bernie Sanders was becoming a, well, I wouldn't say a household name, but a more notable one in um, the the leftist uh, field during the 2016 
presidential primary. Why did you originally not join the Democratic Party when you were, say, 18 years old? Where did you find the disconnect between political parties and your own views? Well, I think at that point, you know, when I first registered to vote was, yeah, it was, it was 2012 probably. It was right before the, uh, the presidential election. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the biggest subject I was thinking about at that point was war. Mm-hmm. I was really concerned, you know, the, the, the Iraq war and, and people around me who had experiences with that were, mm-hmm. were really, uh, you know, that, that was how I got into politics. Yeah. And to me at that time, looking at it, there wasn't an anti-war party. Mm-hmm. You know, the Democrats, uh, nationally, the Democrats made a lot of noise about George Bush, but there was no actual substantial effort to, like, slow down the military industrial complex or take that on uh even you know barack obama's campaign at that time he wasn't he wasn't talking about uh pulling the troops out Mm -hmm. it was there was kind of a belief that he would but i if i'm recalling correctly even during his campaign he was like nah we're there um and so i didn't you know i didn't see that as a party that that reflected the kind of things that were important to me Mm -hmm. at least you know, broadly speaking, I definitely saw them as the better of two options. Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought there were, as I still do to this day, I think the Republicans are looting the country, Yeah. but I didn't see it as something that I wanted to sign my name to, uh, and invest in, in that way. I didn't think it represented mm-hmm. me uh, enough. Will you remain a Democrat? Uh, I am a Democrat now cause I switched over to, to vote. Probably I will remain a Democrat, if only because I'm less, uh, I don't know, I'm less idealistic about it in the sense that I, I don't think that having my name attached to that means mm-hmm. I, I suddenly support war or I support mm-hmm. this or that. You know, I'm a, I'm a little more grown up about it. And frankly, it's it's just kind of a pain in the ass to switch over <laughs> every four years because there's a candidate I like in the primaries. Yes. Um, so I... I probably will stick to Democrat going forward unless something truly egregious happens, which, I mean, hey, keep an eye out. So. Matt, you've been involved with the Democratic Socialists of America. Gallup recently ran a poll that showed 39%, just 39% of Americans have a positive opinion of socialism compared to 57% negative. Pew had a poll, 55% had a negative opinion. NBC had one with, with a 19% positive. Um, even young people, polls have found, show millennials and Gen Z, when you add up those numbers, the majority don't have a positive view of socialism. Mm-hmm. And even a Monmouth poll found 57% of Americans say that socialism isn't compatible with American values. Where do you think that notion was created, and how would you define socialism to make it more appealing to the masses? Sure. Um, well, you know, I think a big part of that is, you know, when people hear socialism, they think of the gulags, right? You, mm-hmm. you immediately go to Stalin and, and uh, Pol Pot and atrocities that were, you know, committed in the name mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, some kind of people's revolution. Um, and I mean, obviously, there's a lot of history there. There's, it's not as, you know, it's never so clear cut. Um, but I think when you talk to people about what socialism actually means, when you talk to them about like the democratization of the workplace, 
about owning the things that you make, mm-hmm. about making decisions for yourself uh, with your community members, mm-hmm. uh, about representation at all levels of government. Uh, you know, people are not necessarily opposed to those ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's just that when you, you, you put the, the big scary hammer and sickle on it, that's when folks are like, whoa, I don't want any part of this. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we need to be better about having those discussions. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the people I run around with uh, were very critical of Bernie Sanders because he wasn't a quote unquote real socialist, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, he wasn't. Bernie Sanders wasn't a Marxist as mm-hmm. much as, you know, people like to. Oh, yeah. To, Fox News says. Yeah. Yeah. As much as people like to think he was Fidel Castro in the flesh. Um but Bernie Sanders was, was of course, an incredible way to, to introduce people to ideas and, mm-hmm. and start talking to people about things like healthcare. Yeah. Start talking to people about things like, uh, you know, I, young people are talking about, like, the Labor Relations Board. It's like, that doesn't just happen. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. because of, of the kind of national conversations we've been having, uh, you know, about, about who we want representing us. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that people don't have a favorable yeah. uh, opinion of socialism. I think those numbers are definitely shifting. I think as more people get uh, yeah. introduced to that idea and as I think as we get further away from the Berlin Wall, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people are going to start reexamining what that would mean in their lives yeah. and, and different new ways of organizing people and of, of, of working together with your communities and with your neighbors. Matt, you talked a lot uh, in this episode so far about Bernie Sanders and how he has been a influence on you. Um, you even changed your registration so that you could vote for him back in 2016. Uh, now we fast forward up to 2020 and things were looking very promising at the start of this year even. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was even a point where you know, Bernie Sanders was the favorite to be the Democratic yeah. nominee for president. Was it, well, there was... 501 or whatever that website is, I don't know what it's called, where mm-hmm. uh, uh, they predicted he would win every state. Yeah. Like, what happened <laughs> to that? So where did, like, uh, know, yes. The, the future looked very bright there. For every every progressive's dream. Yeah. Uh, so what went wrong for him? D- did you feel um, that the you know so-called moderate exodus after South Carolina um, – you know, was that kind of the nail in the coffin? Could anything else have been done from from the Bernie campaign, or um, you know, did you ever actually expect him to win the nomination? No, not at the beginning. Um, I thought in 2016, I, I thought he could have won the nomination. Mm-hmm. Um, when it, you know, he announced that he was going to try again in in 2020, I was initially very skeptical. I didn't think he was going to do very well. Yeah. Um, and then I, uh, you know, when he when he did start doing well, I thought, yeah, well, there's a chance we might have him this year. Yeah. And uh, my my hopes and dreams were dashed yet again. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's there's enough there's been enough time removed from from the primary campaign to really kind of do like a post mortem on like what yeah. went wrong this mm-hmm. time around. Because uh, to be honest, I still don't know what the hell went wrong the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a there's a, a deluge of of you know thought pieces about that about like what bernie could have done to win um even in 2020 so far i know uh there's been a few articles published by by members of his campaign staff and they were like yeah you know i i we were really encouraging sanders to go for the jugular and you know he might have had a better chance if if he'd have done that 
I don't know if that's true. Maybe he would have. Maybe he wouldn't have. Um, you know, like I said, I don't think really enough time has passed for for us to kind of process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the 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 mistakes and the the highlights of the the 2020 Sanders campaign. Uh, I mean, we still haven't really processed what's going to happen mm-hmm. in, in this November. Uh, it's like, how do we campaign about that? Yeah. It's like, who's who's got time to to mourn the loss of Bernie Sanders when we've got you know all this going on hindsight is literally 2020 oh yes case. Oh, yes so matt talking a little bit more now about 2020 oh god <laughs> are you going to vote for joe biden <sighs> this is the question from hell <laughs> um yeah yeah i'm gonna vote for joe biden there's any of my friends listening to this are probably screaming oh jeez right now well, I mean, the big question I think is, you know, it doesn't really matter if I'm going to vote for him or not. I'm going to vote for him. Is like, for me, it's like, am I going to campaign for the guy? Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't, I, I do genuinely think there would be, it, it's harm reduction having Joe Biden in there. I don't think he's necessarily going to do anything, mm-hmm. uh, you know, remarkably great for us. Mm-hmm. Um I think some of the same destructive policies of like workers' rights, mm-hmm. of the environment, uh, the same draconian policies against immigrants. Uh, you know, these things are going to continue, whether it's a Biden uh, Biden presidency or a Trump presidency. I think it's a matter of like the degree to which that will happen. Um, and it's like, do you know if you know to to address the elephant in the room it's like if i knock on somebody's door and i'm like hey uh you know i'm out campaigning for joe biden can we count on your vote and someone who is you know a democrat or a liberal or left of center says yeah you know i would support him but i i you know he's he's has allegations of of sexual assault against him uh and i'm uncomfortable voting for him for that reason it's like what am i the conversation ends there Mm -hmm. right it's like how do you how do you sit there and and try and convince somebody that like ah you need to look past this or oh you know think of all the other uh you know bad things that the other guy's gonna do Mm -hmm. it's like i can't sit there and and have that conversation with someone i feel uncomfortable enough uh you know going around knocking on doors for the guy knowing that he has been accused of that Mm -hmm. I, i believe credibly accused of that um and so that for me that's the big question is like to what you know, I, I don't want Donald Trump to be the president in, yeah. in November. Um, how do I act politically in such a way that that guy is going to be out of office without necessarily, uh, you know, being supportive of what a Joe Biden presidency would look like? Yeah. And I mean, that's the age old question. That's not that's not a unique to me. I think that's a pain a lot of people are feeling right now. A lot of people on the left are feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not one of the, the people that, that dismiss electoral politics as useless um, because I think there are a lot of useful things that can, that can come about from having, you know, such a radical idea as uh, representatives that actually represent you and will actually fight for your interests. Wow, I've um, heard of that before. Yeah, right? Like, how often does that happen? Um, and some people, you know, on, on the left are, are very dismissive of that and think of it as a waste of time. And I, I personally, uh, I don't subscribe to that idea. So it's, I don't know how to act in November. I have no idea. Does Joe Biden's VP choice play a factor? Uh, who do you 
want to see uh, Joe Biden pick. I think most people would probably say the most liberal contender out there right now could be Elizabeth Warren Mm -hmm. um, in terms of people being actively vetted that we know of um, or as many are advocating for is a black woman needed as the VP nominee. You know, I don't think it necessarily makes a big di- big difference. I think the 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 political project's going to be the same thing. I think the 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 selection of the VP is more of a campaign move, I think, than than any real practical consideration in am I going to to vote for this guy or campaign for this guy. Um, you know, I I don't. There's no nobody. I think that that is seriously in contention for the vice presidency right now that I think would uh, be in contradiction to some of the more harmful things that, that a Joe Biden presidency would would uh, would present. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it certainly doesn't undo, you know, any of his complicity in, you know, war crimes, any of the things that happened whether when he was in Congress during the Obama administration. You know, those are all things we need to take into consideration. And I don't know if, uh, you know, him him selecting someone as a vice president because he thinks it would look good in a campaign is is enough to really seriously uh, shift that, uh, you know, that, that political uh, ideology. Some people, Matt, are saying to vote Green Party this year. I see some people saying... You know, posting uh, pictures and quotes from the libertarian nominee, whose name I don't really know right Joe, now. Joe Jorgensen, Joe Jorgensen, okay. something like that, yeah. So, where do you stand with with such high stakes this year? Uh, we saw in 2016 the, the f- little fractions of a vote, of the percentage of a vote, um, that actually put Donald Trump in the White House— and some people say, you know, Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, they may have been a direct player in getting Donald Trump in the White House. So, you know, where do you stand on people saying, you know what, I'm voting green. I don't like either of these candidates. Clearly, you've already told us who you're going to vote for. But yeah. what do you say? Are you detracting others from doing that? No, I, I mean, I think if, if you genuinely think that that, uh, that Joe Jorgensen or uh, Howie Hawkins is the, the Green Party candidate, if you, if you genuinely believe those people represent you and represent the kind of society you want to live in, vote for them. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, it's, it's not Jill Stein's fault that anyone lost. It's, you know, third-party candidates have been around forever. Um, you know the, the the solution to that problem isn't to get rid of third party candidates it's to, it's to be a better candidate it's to be a, you know run you know be more representative of the country as a democrat or as a republican and if you're unable to do that and you're losing people to these kind of fringe third parties you know that's that's on the candidates for not uh you know not building a, a political base that's that's uh motivating or that people feel included in so you don't subscribe to the notion that a vote for anybody but Biden is a vote for Trump? No, I don't subscribe to that. Um, uh, no, I don't subscribe to that. I, again, because I think it's it's not 
it's not the fault of a person who feels that this third party candidate represents them better. It's the fault of, you know, Donald Trump or Joe Biden for not representing the, the voters. So what will you personally be doing come post Labor Day when every American is beginning to really tune in to the election? What is Matt Adams doing for the candidate of your choice? Uh, well, you know, hopefully the same thing I'm I'm always doing. Um, you know, I'm I, you know I'll agonize and squirm around about the presidential election, but I, I don't see that as being a big part of the kind of work that I want to do. Uh, you know, I'm more interested in things that are going on in the community. Uh, by fall, the the coronavirus is going to be back. We're going to have troubles with it. I think the mutual aid networks are going to be really important in uh, in supporting the community where it's hurting. There's a there's a movement right now in the city. Uh, Tim Baker and a few others have really started uh, kind of raising awareness about um, different laws regarding police and violence against people, and, and citing specific examples of, of uh, you know police misconduct in the city. Uh, and there's there's really it seems like a, a movement forming around that that I'm really interested in. I haven't really been able to participate in any mm -hmm. way, but I'm I'm encouraged by the kind of uh, things they're getting out in the streets about uh i'm interested in in you know some of the dialogue publicly that's happening around uh, black lives matter and mm -hmm. uh, again tying back into police reform uh you know there's going to be local elections that are probably more uh we can probably have more of an impact on uh locally that i think are important to plug into and just keeping an eye out keeping an eye out for for campaigns and for candidates and for opportunities that seem like they'd be helpful and useful and uh, more contributing to the, the, the kind of world that I want to live in and that I think we should be living in. Um, and so those are the things, you know, this fall and beyond that I'm going to be looking for. All right, it's lightning round time, Matt, Woo! as we wrap up this very intriguing and informative episode of Blue Collar Convos. Matt, Say you're president for a day. Okay. <laughs> you control both houses. Okay. You have the opportunity to push one policy through and make it the law of the land. Yeah. What is that policy? Abolish ICE. Abolish ICE. Abolish ICE, yeah. No, they're, they're the most despicable, cowardly, uh, violent uh, vermin in this country right now um and uh, they it needs to be dissolved they serve no useful practical purpose in the everyday lives of americans other than intimidate other than uh to serve as as thugs uh other than to break up uh labor unions other than to terrorize immigrant communities uh and they they need to be gone and we just saw today uh, ice coming out and basically telling uh, international students coming to America to study. Some have been here for, for years, and they're, they're saying you're no longer welcomed here if your college takes preventative measures during a global pandemic. That's essentially what's, what's happened. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's, I, I think it's become pretty clear that that's, you know, that's not going to hold up in the courts. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have student visas for a reason, and I don't think the intention was that it was ever going to hold up in the courts. I think it's it's... Well, it's twofold. I think one is uh, to leverage college universities to open up because Donald Trump seems, you know, hell bent on 
this American death cult idea where he wants all the universities and, and schools to open up, uh, which is clearly dangerous, which is clearly mm-hmm. going to cause harm to people. Um, and two is it's, it's, you know, just another day for immigrations and customs enforcement. You know, they look for new ways to terrorize uh, minority communities. And, you know, this is par for the course for them. Mm-hmm. So. What are you getting involved in personally and professionally going forward? Is there anything on your radar? Um, where do you see yourself over the course of, of the next couple of years? Um, any certain goals or aspirations that you're looking to get into yourself? Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm professionally getting more involved in social work and uh, I've, you know, the last couple of years been more interested in, in kind of like tenants' rights and tenant organizing and I'm, I'm interested in uh, the ways we can do that in Altoona. It's, we have a lot of renters here, but it's not necessarily set up like in, in some of the bigger cities where mm-hmm. uh, you've got a, a ton of people living in one building here it's like a lot of houses where people will rent out a room or a floor and uh there aren't a lot of of proven strategies i don't think for for organizing those kinds of people uh in that that kind of you know spatial situation it's a it's a lot there's a lot more of a history organizing uh you know tenants who live in big buildings all in one space than there is for organizing people who are more spread out and so that's something i'm, I'm kind of keeping on the radars ways that that kind of work can be done in the area well it's such influential work and um thank you in advance for all that you're doing now but also Uh, everything you're going to do uh moving forward um you know talk about being a uh man of the people uh, well don't thank me up there's still plenty of time to screw it up (laughs) which i undoubtedly will find a way to do matt one more question for you 50 years from now oh god someone is sitting down 2070 they're listening to this podcast they're listening to you how do you hope their world um or the united states collectively has changed from today i i hope it's a world where people's uh people's needs are met you know uh human rights put people first defines human rights as the things that someone needs to survive. That's housing, that's food, that's health care. Um, you know, I, I hope 50 years from now we live in a world where uh, those are guaranteed to people, where people don't need to worry about those things and people don't need to scrounge around, uh, you know, money to, to keep from getting evicted or they don't need, you know, Kickstarter campaigns to, to get the medications they need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if... if we can get a little closer to that world. Uh, I, I think, you know, we'll have, we'll have done a great credit to our communities. Fantastic. Matt, as a thank you for you joining us today, if our listeners feel extra inspired by you, mm-hmm. uh, we'd like to give them the opportunity to uh, maybe chip in and make a charitable contribution to an organization of your choosing. Is there... Um, a group out there that you would like to direct them to and we'll put a link in our bio yeah thank you i, th- I think the big one uh, right now that i would i would suggest people if if you you know are able to help uh the 4cr solidarity fund uh up in center county it's kind of an arm of the the you know a couple different groups including the center county democratic socialists of america um 
I mentioned them earlier, but they're they're up there. They're doing work. Uh, people are applying for funds if they need them for things like rent or keeping the lights on or if they have bills or medical bills, uh, you know what have you. Um, and they've they've got the the infrastructure up there where if you know they can they have accounts set up with that money in it and they can make sure that gets out responsibly. Uh, and also just like keep an eye on what's going on locally, like you know when COVID comes back. Uh, Mutual aid networks are going to be springing up everywhere, whether you want to call them mutual aid or, or projects of survival or, um, you know, whatever, however you want to uh, uh, frame that. Uh, keep an eye on what's going on locally. Um, you know, people always need help, and there's going to be a lot of opportunities for us to plug in and help each other. And also keep an eye out for, like, where those opportunities don't seem to be springing up. If you recognize that there is a genuine need in your community that's not being met by any of the, the organizations, whether they be, like, some grassroots group or, like, your local city government or the state, uh, you know, that's that's the time to step in and, and start talking to people and, and start pulling resources and, and start thinking about what you want your community to look like. Uh, none of us with rare exception are experts at this you know mm. we all make mistakes doing it it's intimidating it's it's it takes a lot of courage to like uh go out and and put yourself out there in the communities like this um but like you know somebody's got to do it mm -hmm. and there are people any group i've ever been in like the kind of work we do like there is somebody somewhere that's more qualified to do the work that i'm doing but it's like they're not there right now and you know we were so we had to do it and that's, you know, it's not much more complicated than that. Look for the need, uh, plug in, you know, talk to your neighbors, talk to your community, think about the kind of world you want to live in. And that's it. Great way to close this out, Matt. Uh, once again, a link to donate to the 4CR Solidarity Fund, Matt's organization of choice, is located in this episode's description. Matt. I can't thank you enough for joining me here today, and I look forward to having you back on the show real soon. Yeah, Jordan, thank you very much. I appreciate all the work you do, too. You should give yourself some credit. So. Thanks again to Matt. You can check out the link in this episode's description to find the 4CR Solidarity Funds website, as well as a link to donate to Angela Madsen's Documentary Fund. We can help bring her final story to life on screen just as she wanted. That link in the description. That's all for today's episode, folks. It's July. Things are heating up, literally. Follow us on Twitter if you have a chance, at Blue Collar Pod. And call into the show at 814-799-0290 and let your voice be heard. To play us out, a quote from Angela Madsen herself. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in, and please stay healthy and safe. And it's it's really about um, um, the power and control that we have in our own lives and the choices we have to make. You can remain adrift, um, or you can choose where you want to go, and you can take steps to to make yourself get there. So.